It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. My name is Yossi Klein Halevi, and I'm a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. Today is Monday, September 14th, and you are listening to For Heaven's Sake, the new podcast of the Institute's I Engage program. In each edition of For Heaven's Sake, Daniil Hartman, president of the Institute, and myself will be discussing an issue central to Israel and to the Jewish world. And then, Alana Stein-Hain, director of the Hartman faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish texts can enrich our understanding of the issue. Our theme today is the Israel we imagine. The High Holidays are an invitation to transcend our ordinary conversations, including our Israel conversation. As we imagine a new year and its potential blessings, I'd like to invite all of us to step out for a moment from the boundaries of what is and imagine the Israel we would like to begin to see emerging in this coming year. Israel is a country that was dreamed into existence. Theodore Herzl was a playwright and choreographed the Zionist Congress as though he were staging a play. Some of the other early great Zionist leaders were novelists and poets. And so unavoidably, we constantly measure Israeli reality against the vision. How does the real Israel measure up to our expectations? What are the failures, the disappointments? But every so often, we need to step back and reformulate the dream renew our capacity for vision. What is the Israel we want, the Israel we dream of? Not a utopian vision detached from reality, but a vision resembling Jacob's ladder, reaching for the heavens while firmly anchored on earth. And so, Daniel, when you think of your dream Israel that is still rooted in reality, what does it look like? Where do you begin? Hi, Yossi. I start by thinking about what is the best that we should stand for? What's the best of us? The Israel that I imagine has to represent the best of us. But then your challenge in the introduction is what makes it so interesting. You want a Jacob's ladder. You see, I could sit here and speak about the light unto the nations and go, and then I could move myself deeply. And then the minute I stop talking, I go into the street and I get depressed and then I want to, I want to leave. So that's easy. But the Israel we imagine has to start with an articulation about what's the best of who we ought to be. So when the Declaration of Independence speaks about justice, peace, and equality, that's a good place to start. It was an exercise in the Israel we imagine in saying, what are the really important things that we care about? So it almost has to have two stages to it, yes. One stage has to start with a, it's not utopian, but it is setting the bar high and then asking ourselves how close could we get to that bar in a very complicated reality. And so 
for me, the, the Israel that I imagine, a good place to start is the Declaration of Independence, justice, peace, and equality. A country that knows that it lives in the Middle East, but never stops dreaming and singing about peace and yearning for peace. That peace is a core agenda, not just utilitarian and self-serving, but as a vision of the world. A country that is committed to equality, whether it's equality between Jews and non-Jews, or the greatest inequalities in Israel, and that is the inequalities that exist between Jews and Jews, and particularly between Jews of religious ideologies. And then a country in which justice transcends. The political structures know that this is the rule. This is the holy of holy. And so I start there. Then my compromises are going to come in a moment. And I know it's a little difficult to have peace and coalition. But the Israel I imagined, like Jacob's ladder, talks about the part of the ladder that's in heaven and then contextualizes it by grounding it in the earth. It doesn't start with the earth. What's yours? Well, I begin with the Declaration of Independence as well, which, frankly, looking both at the Middle East today and increasingly at our own reality, uh, seems more and more like a utopian document. But taking the Declaration of Independence as our own best idea of ourselves, I start not with peace, which really is a projection of our relationship outward, but more internally. And... My starting point is the tension, the creative tension at its best between Israel as a Jewish state and Israel as a democratic state. What do we mean by Jewish? What do we mean by democratic? And what do we mean by Jewish and democratic? And if I had to make a list of priorities, I begin with Israel as a Jewish state, as does the declaration itself. We begin with the reason why we were created, which was to be the state of the Jewish people. And then I ask myself the question, are we fulfilling that vision? Are we? So here, under the issue of that this is the Israel we imagine, because it is the homeland of the Jewish people, what is it that you're imagining beyond the reality right now? Well, in Israel, that any Jew anywhere can see a reflection of their own Jewish identity, at least in part. Or certainly, when you look at Israel, you don't see your Jewish identity deliberately excluded. So that, for me, that's, that's Zionism. It's not religious pluralism. Israelis don't understand the language of religious pluralism. It, it's, it's a foreign concept to most Israelis. They, most Israelis come from families that have origins in countries where there was no religious pluralism. But if you speak to us about Zionism, about the ideals of, of Jewish unity, that's something that I think most Israelis do resonate with. And so the starting point is, are we fulfilling our responsibilities? Again, not to the abstract principles of religious pluralism, but to the very concrete principles of Jewish unity, of an engathering of identities and creating a public space that reflects the totality of, of the Jewish experience. That's my starting point. The next question on this checklist is uh, the promise, as you noted, that the founders made to the Arab minority. And that was a promise of unequivocal equality. 
And they made this promise in the middle of war. The war did not begin on May 14th, 1948. We were actually in the middle of a civil war with the Palestinians when Ben-Gurion read the declaration and, and publicly committed himself to equality with people who we were fighting, who were our enemies. And how have we done 72 years later? That's, that's a very painful question. But, but under the Israel we imagine, we don't think about the painful question. Yes. So under the Israel that we imagine, I imagine an Israel that has fulfilled or has gone a long way toward fulfilling, again, under difficult circumstances of war and siege, uh, but beginning to fulfill the promise of equality, or at the very least, that takes that promise seriously, that takes that promise as a non-negotiable commitment. See, now, a part of this whole exercise of the Israel we imagine, as you outlined, is that so much of our discourse is about where Israel is not living up to our imagination, our fantasies, our expectations, our yearnings. And part of what's happened is that the lovers of Israel believe themselves to be responsible to correct Israel, and therefore our job is to point to its shortcomings. But part of what's happened is that we've even forgotten what is it that we're yearning for. And so just simply articulating this Rosh Hashanah, articulating for ourselves as we start our new year, I know there's going to be time afterwards, and we know that to look at all of the shortcomings that every human creation, our nation and other nations have. But I think we have to reclaim this type of conversation. Talk about what does a Jewish state mean? What is the issues of equality about? I would argue, don't give up. I don't want to prioritize between the eternal and the external. Because part of the dangers of nationalism is that you could end up spending most of your time on the internal and not enough on the external. When I talk about peace, I'm not talking about peace and quiet. I'm talking about to what extent do you see our national rebirth as a rebirth that has to pursue peaceful coexistence in our neighborhood to the best of our ability? Ah, so now you're making a very important distinction, Daniel. The distinction is our responsibility to pursue peace, not to actually make peace, because that's not dependent on us alone. Remember, this is the Israel we imagine right now. Right. And we don't want to let, you're right, we don't want to let reality stop us from aspiring. Now, very often, as you and I, we've spoken, and we, our opinions have shifted so much over the years, as we've experienced, whether rightfully or wrongfully, Palestinian rejection, and intifadas. But part of what's happened in Israel is that we've stopped even yearning for it. I remember I grew up in an Israel. I made Aliyah to Israel in 1971. And two years later, there was the Yom Kippur War. And I remember most of the best songs that we sang were songs about peace. Those were the songs. I remember at our house, my parents crying when, when we heard Yoram Gaon sing for the first time, I promise you, my young daughter, that this will be the last, the last war. We dared to imagine. Fingers crossed. The exercise of imagining is not just psychologically uplifting. It's politically transformational. Because 
every single major political transformation in history begins with an act of imagination. That's what human beings are capable of. And our challenge as Jews okay. is forget about the problem. Let's imagine. So let's go and say, yes, I don't have to distinguish between making or not making what's possible or not. This is who I want to be. I don't want to come home and be at war. I yearn for something else. Now, how do I implement that? That's a separate question. But I have responsibility to maintain my aspiration, independence of the implementation. Danielle, we are speaking on the eve of the signing of the peace agreement between Israel and, uh, and two Arab countries. Let's imagine for a moment what we would like to see the Prime Minister of Israel say as he turns to the Arab world, as he turns to the Palestinian people, which of course he won't, but we're imagining. What should he say? What would you like to hear him say? As a Jew, I have come home, not in order to rule other people, not in order to have to defend myself by the power of my arms and my weapons. I have come home in order to engage with others who I recognize have come home to. And I turn to my Palestinian neighbors and say to them, I reach out to you with a hand of peace because I want for you and I want for me the ability to be able to see each other, respect each other, coexist with each other, and live side by side with each other. And the same type of, do you notice the type of discourse that's coming out of the Emirates? It's so different than the peace with Egypt and Jordan, which was done with of the leaders and the people, we, we, we couldn't even go there. We, and if we go, we have to take off our kippahs and hide. It's just, there's just an embracing. And what would happen if the Prime Minister of Israel would make that type of embracing and to declare, this is what I yearn for. Don't talk now about borders and don't talk about settle. We'll have to deal with that. But a clear embracing of an aspiration of peace, respect, and living with the other. That's beautiful. That's beautiful, Daniel. You know, if, if I could for a moment conceptualize what you've just said, and that is that we yearn for an Israel that would have the generosity of spirit to act from a position of strength and success, because this is actually one of the peak moments of Israeli achievement. In some sense, we are seeing the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict. It's a different conflict now. It's a Palestinian-Israeli conflict. It's a conflict between Israel and Iran. But the Arab-Israeli conflict, which you and I grew up on, is basically coming to an end. And at that moment, to have an Israeli leader capable, first of all, not of gloating, not of boasting that we've achieved peace for peace, but really to be able to offer our neighbors the next step, and say, we'd really like to share something of this success, something of this achievement with, with you, with the Palestinians. You see, I would even encourage, you know, rabbis who are listening to this podcast, why don't they take the challenge of what you just gave me? Say, if I was the Prime Minister of Israel, hmm. this is the speech, not in order to criticize Netanyahu, but the Jewish world will reconnect, Zionism will be important again when we reclaim our imagination. 
When we reclaim our ability to talk this way, we'll get excited again. Tomorrow, we'll talk about all the difficulties. We, know, we all know that marriage is difficult, etc. But if there isn't an excitement, a passion, a love, like what if, if everybody's sitting down and talking about all the problems all the time, you, don't even get, you won't get married. You won't enter into a relationship with someone. Friendship, anything, has its risks. Rabbis, intellectual figures, we have to engage in this exercise. And so the same challenge that you gave to me, I would challenge rabbis across North America. My speech to Palestinians, my speech to fellow Israelis, not about what is wrong in state of religion. Talk about what is your vision of what a homeland of the Jewish people is, similar again to things that you mentioned. So this type of exercise, I think, is critical. And only if we talk about it are we going to set a model for what we hope our politicians will engage in. Instead of constantly talking about, you know, we challenge them, it's like there's a press conference dynamic here. You get up, whether it's your president or your prime minister, and regardless of what they say, you attack them, and then they have to defend themselves. And everybody's going down, 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 instead of anything being larger. And Zionism, if anything, contains that larger dimension. I hunger, I almost physically hunger for that type of conversation. It's interesting that you bring in Zionism into the conversation, because really the great success of Zionism was its ability to navigate between the pragmatic and the utopian. Zionism, in a, in a sense, was pragmatic utopianism. Right. And, and so the question really for us is, how do we renew that spirit of pragmatic utopianism? When we allow ourselves to dream again, how do we dream in a way where we are still maintaining, as we say in Hebrew, eye contact, with, with reality? The truth is, I don't know. I don't know. The, I think the purpose of this podcast is, is to raise this issue. When we want Jews to feel something, we create a ritual. We ritualize things. So Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, the high holidays, are the most optimistic days of the year. We actually assume that we could open up a new page. And we tell people, dream about who you want to be. Forget about it. You're free. You're disconnected from your past. Like the utopian idea that you could actually be somebody different. But it's not enough. I think that's one of the purposes for Shabbat. One of the purposes of Shabbat is to let go of all the what we can't be and what we don't have the time to be. And we dress ourselves with certain dimensions of spirituality, family, ethics, sensitivity. And I think part of what the challenge is is that we don't have enough daily rituals or ongoing rituals to think about the state we want. Judaism, in many ways, is a great religion for challenging the individual to be more. But it's not maybe too many years of diasporic life. We haven't trained or adapted our rituals to ask national questions. And what you and I are doing today is saying, let's, let's adopt Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur as a moment to talk about the Israel we imagine. But maybe we also have to use Shabbat. It can't be once or twice a year. It has to be on an ongoing basis. And in many ways, just as in our prayers, we constantly pray for the Messianic era. Again, we have to institute spaces to not allow the reality of the Middle East and our sense of discomfort with this or that government dominate everything that we do. Daniel, one last question before we turn to Alana. How do you envision, what is your, your dream scenario of American-Jewish-Israeli relations? 
I'll do it really brief because I want to hear yours. <laughs> I would say a competition about the Israel we imagine. And instead of, who are you to tell me? Like we see it as criticism. So if Israelis talk about the Israel you imagine, Americans could say, or Canadians, you're whitewashing. Or if Americans say, this is the Israel I imagine, how dare you, come on Aliyah and then only imagine. I would love a competition. Um, not for who's protecting Israel the most, the army or APAC, but rather, let's learn from each other's imaginations and feed off of them. What's yours? A bit of a uh, different variation on what you've just said, that Israelis would learn from American Jews how not to be cynical about our potential in the Middle East, would learn from American Jews how to dream vastly again, and that American Jews would learn from Israelis to be more cautious in their dreams. You want each one of us to hold a different side of Jacob's ladder. Yes, exactly right. Wow, thank you. We'll take a short break and then return with Alana Steinhead. Hi, I'm Claire Sufren, and if you're listening to For Heaven's Sake, you're probably curious about the major ideas and debates of the day affecting Jews in America. So I have great news for you. I'm the co-editor with Yehuda Kurtzer of The New Jewish Canon, a book that just came out this summer. You can find out more about it at newjewishcanon.com. In this book, we've gathered all Jewish ideas that happened between 1980 and 2015. Well, maybe not quite everything, but it contains major texts and debates that were vitally important to the American Jewish community, along with a series of reflective essays by today's thinkers that explain the debates and their importance. Read about it and how to buy it at newjewishcanon.com. So, Alana Steinhain, wonderful to be with you. Same. You know, I got to say, this is so, it's just beautiful to hear the two of you talk about this. And I want to talk about why it's so difficult to imagine. Um, and I want to talk about it actually, first and foremost, not from a Jewish text, but from a 20th century philosopher, Suzanne Langer. Your conversation is really reminding me of her distinction between sign and symbol. She basically talks about how anybody can read a sign. A sign tells you stop, a sign tells you go, a sign tells you you see clouds overhead, you got to get your umbrella. But a symbol is something that you can imagine and doesn't necessarily tell you what to do. And really what we're talking about is that Israel, before it exists, it's a symbol. So I can imagine it this way, you can imagine it that way, and we don't have to beat each other up about it. But once we get to the place itself, it's all signs. So as soon as you tell me, you imagine this, I say, wait, no, but you're not reading the stop sign. The stop sign said stop. And that's what you have to do. You say, that's not a red light. That's a green light. What are you even talking about? So it's natural. It's normal. What we need is, you know, Danielle, you're saying we need ritual. We need symbolism, right? right. What's this, what are the symbols that we are allowed to interpret differently from each other? And I want to put this in context of Rosh Hashanah because as much as we talk about Rosh Hashanah being a time when you reinvent yourself, there's something in Jewish tradition that actually works against that. You know, our mindset is usually about the givens and trying to work within the givens, right? So we analyze what we see in front of us, what's problematic. And it really reminds me, you know, on the first day of Rosh Hashanah, we read the story of Hagar and Yishmael being expelled from Avram and Sarah's house. And in that story, 
they get lost in the wilderness or they're just walking and they run out of water. Hagar puts Ishmael down essentially to die, but she doesn't want to see it. And he cries and he cries out and God hears his cry. And the verse says, God hears his cry, but Asher who shun. God hears his cry. Sounds like literally where he sits. And for the rabbis, this is like shocking. What do you mean you hear the cry of Ishmael? For the rabbis, Ishmael is such a problematic figure. And they say, how could God hear the cry of Ishmael? And they actually say that God has a conversation with the ministering angels and tries to explain to them, Ba'asher Husham. He's judged by where he is right now, his current actions, not his future actions. That, I think, Ba'asher Husham, current actions, that is something we are stuck in. You can celebrate it. Oh, wow, God could look at Yishmael and say, even before he does anything that the rabbis are going to think are problematic, in this moment, we, we, we freeze frame this moment. But I think we're stuck in a Basher Husham, the freeze frame. And I'm talking about American Jews, the freeze frame of what Israel is now. So if you like it and it's working for you, great. Exactly as it is right now. If you don't like it, oy, exactly how it is right now. And that's very normal and it's very natural. But what you're asking us to do is you're asking us to look beyond what we can see in front of our eyes. So the category you're asking for, it's not knowledge, it's belief, right? I, I actually want to take the category of emunah, of belief, of faith, and bring it in here. The context in Judaism of faith is religious, but the truth is that belief and faith is something that could be both religious and secular. So when I talk about belief here, I mean trust. I mean interest in something growing. In the context of Israel, it could be faith in the project itself, which there are plenty of Americans who are not feeling that faith. For some, it's religious belief. For some, it's historical and experiential significance of Jewish sovereignty. Faith allows you to step out of what things could be. But when do you have faith? Well, I find there are two times when you have faith. One is where things are just really not going well. You need an escape. Faith is your escape. You're sitting and saying next year in Jerusalem because the place where you are right now is pretty horrible. Asking for imagination when American Jews, I'm not talking about Israelis, when American Jews feel at home in America and you're telling us, no, have faith. Don't just look at Israel as it is right now. Look at Israel as it could be. And we say, what do I, what do I, I don't need this. Who are you supposed to have faith in, Ilana, for the Israel we imagine? I think it's a really good question. Faith in Israelis? Faith that just as the rest of the world could do tshuva, Israelis could do tshuva too. Faith that, that we will transcend the Middle East. Faith that maybe we could be different. Faith that maybe an American Jew could say, you know, because now it's all au courant to say, American Jews and Israeli Jews are so different, we're not the same. Maybe it's faith to believe that Israelis could embody the same moral principles as Americans do or Canadians do. I don't want Americans to try to make Israelis in their image. I think that's dangerous because then we can't actually be a chavruta to each other. 
we can't actually help each other. But maybe it's faith in the idea that we don't know everything before it happens. Meaning maybe it's less, I have faith in the Israelis, I have faith in the Americans, I have faith in the relationship between American Jewry and Israel. And maybe it's actually a faith that is about not thinking that the way things are right now is the way they will always be. Just that, just that phenomenology in the world. There's no such thing. The way things are is never the way things will always be. And there's a humility that comes with that kind of faith. It's not the people. It's the way that the world actually works. Things don't stay the same. And I think people who actually have faith in that, they, they get involved in a different kind of way. I think it's also faith that there is a shared system of values that Jews around the world can draw on. Faith that American Jews and Israelis are not necessarily trying to make each other in their image as much as struggling together to try to figure out how do we live as worthy Jewish communities, each of us in our own very different circumstances. I'm not even so afraid of trying to make each other in each other's image because the process of engaging in the Israel you imagine is to feel free. Is Of course, I want an Israel that excites North American Jews. I want it as someone who's not only partially North American, I want it as an Israeli. I know that the engagement with Israel, whether of Israelis or of world Jewry, will only happen if each one has a dream that's authentic to their categories. The problem is, is we don't even allow ourselves to dream because we let the other one circumscribe and limit my dreams. I can't do Israel, I imagine. Ah, because Israelis don't agree with me. I want us to let it go. And now you're right. We're, we're stuck Basher Husham. I see the Israelis where they are. But the Israel we imagine is not about looking at Israelis where they are. It's about whether you have the courage to even engage in a dream anymore. And you know why it's so difficult, Ilana? Because once you dream, you have expectations and it could fail. It could fail. And so we've become so used to protecting ourselves anymore. I don't want anybody depressed by Israel anymore. So I don't even talk about, like we get rid of the depression. Yeah, it's interesting because I think there's, there's two sides. Because on the one hand, people may be afraid to dream or to believe because they're worried about failure. On the other hand, people may be afraid to believe and to dream because they think it's a pipe dream. They think they are lying to themselves. They think it's apologetics. And I think for many American Jews, it's, it's that latter part. It's not, oh, we're going to get so invested. It's why should I get invested in this? It's not real. It's all in the heavens. That's what it is. And the truth is, that's where if things were not good for American Jews, not that coronavirus is so good, but if things were not good for American Jews, it would be much easier for American Jews to say, oh, I have faith that that could be something amazing. I mean, I want to bring one more text which is the conversation that the rabbis understand happening between God and Moshe and Moses when he's supposed to take the Jews out on the Exodus, right? From Egypt, from slavery. Now you would imagine that would be the perfect place to dream, right? It would be the perfect place to dream. You're stuck in Egypt. You want to get out. It's the perfect place to dream. But as you mentioned, what do you mean when you're stuck in the real problems? How could you possibly dream? And so what does Moses say to God? 
in chapter four of Exodus, they're not going to believe me. The people won't have faith. They won't believe. And you know what the rabbis say? The rabbis say that Moses at that moment, he transgressed a serious sin, the sin of suspecting someone wrongly. He suspected that the people wouldn't believe in him. And God responds, and this is in Babylonian Talmud, Shabbat 97a, for people who want to look it up. God responds, don't you realize these people are believers, the children of believers. They're ma'aminim b'nei ma'aminim. You, Moshe, you're the one who's not having the faith that's necessary. And in the future, won't have the faith that's necessary. There's something in that moment where the leader himself says, I don't have faith anymore. And instead says the people don't actually have faith. And what I wonder in this moment, the conversation that we're having with rabbis across North America, and we're saying, challenge the people to be excited about Israel. And I want to know whether the leaders themselves still have faith and where that faith comes from. And I would challenge people this Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, if they want to talk about Israel, to talk about what makes them excited. Talk about what they believe in. What is it that fuels their faith in this? Not about how, oh, the youth are disaffected and they don't care. Because, yeah, that that could be true. But just like you're saying you need Netanyahu to speak a certain way, because that's the generosity of spirit that he should have and model, we need our leaders, our rabbis, to lead a certain way and be able to say, this is where I struggle with the Asher Husham, where Israel is today, and these are the problems I have, but this is the emunah, this is the faith that I have. I want to share my double vision with you. That has to come from Moshe to the people, not the reverse. It can't come from the people to the leaders. And I think that's a real challenge for us right now. I think we're couching it as, you know, some of the young people in America, but I I think it's much deeper than that. So we have a catch-22. In other words, the lack of imagination is not a millennial disease, but it's a catch-22 because only if you're willing to engage, and that goes back to the idea of symbols and rituals. We need symbols and rituals to reactivate it, and when we reactivate it, it reinforces itself and then it becomes possible. When you're outside of it, it's why imagine? It doesn't matter. But once you do it itself, part of every relationship is also a relationship not with where the person is, but it's where the person could also be. I don't think that's unhealthy. I think that's part of the way in which we create a, a, the complexity and the, and the longevity of a relationship. And the question is, can you articulate the reason to believe? Why are you desperate to believe in this? You have to be able to articulate that and be honest. The Israel we imagine the Israel we long for, how do we renew our faith in our own imagination, in our capacity to dream even as we remain mindful of the constraints of reality? Maintaining balance between dream and reality is really the essential dance of Judaism. And thank you, Daniel and Ilana, for being my partners in this dance. And Shana Tova to everyone. Shana Tova indeed. Thank you all for listening. For Heaven's Sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced by David Svi Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman and music is provided by SoCal.
To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about the show, and you can write us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are available. Shana Tova, blessings for the year, a better year to all of us. Amen. Amen, indeed.